This reading, the second reading on which the sermon is based, is from the Gospel of John, chapter 20. You can remain seated for this reading today. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will come and take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabunai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Go, do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Creator, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It is the high holy season in our house. A season to confront the hope of what might yet be, even while facing the frailty of all human dreams and aspirations. Is it, a time, it is a time to watch the great human drama play out again, the story of David and Goliath, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. It is the best of times. It is the worst of times. It is college basketball tournament time, friends. March Madness. Yes, it's also Lent, but the NCAA tournament is the only thing that comes as close in our house to being almost a liturgical season. It has all its traditions. Instead of bread and wine, the meal is potato chips, chicken wings, and celery sticks. Instead of purple, our particular pyramids are red and blue, goes eggs. And the hymn of the day is One Shining Moment by Luther Vandross. If you get any or all of these references, please find my husband the next time he is in worship, because you will have a lot to talk about together. Now, I'm probably veering a little close to blasphemy here, so I'm going to back away from that cliff, but here's why I bring it up. As you may know, the college basketball tournament starts with basically 64 teams. By the time you move the winners on, it takes several weeks to get to the final game, just ahead of us now, in which two of those teams compete for the championship. That means early on, there are multiple games every day, 32 games to start with. And fitting 32 games into a short period of time means those games are on all day long, on multiple channels. In turn, this might mean that your beloved team could play its first game on a Thursday at 11 a.m. when you are at work. And if, say, you are a, oh, I don't know, middle school PE teacher, like a certain person I am married to, <laughs> you can't just tell a class of 40 kids to go entertain themselves while you watch Gonzaga basketball. So you have to record the game at home and watch it later. That's fine, no problem. Technology has made it a lot easier to do this since you don't have to read a 300-page manual about programming your VCR. 
But there is one last step to success, and that is from the time the game is over until you get home and turn on the recording of it, you must studiously avoid all possible spoilers. And this, my friends, is a nearly impossible task. In our house, this looks like my husband coming through the door, having avoided the radio, turned off the app notifications on his phone, I assume warning people all day long not to tell him what happened in the game and like, don't even approach him with a look of excitement or disappointment. And then walking into the house in the middle of the sentence, nobody tell me the score. We have strict instructions to have the TV turned on to a not sports station because the last thing you want to avoid is that little scrolling scores banner at the bottom that will get you every time. But fear not, we have done this before. Finally, having made it through that obstacle course, you can enjoy a game that has, in fact, been over for six hours. <laughs> Am I teasing my husband? A little bit. I'm pretty sure he's out, he's out of town. I'm pretty sure he's watching the live stream today, so I'm just waiting for a text to see how he thinks it. <laughs> but as elaborate as our score-avoiding schemes are, it was familiar territory to me because this is how I grew up. My dad was the same way, walking through the door, saying the same thing although it was a much simpler time before smartphones and cable TV. Here's the deeper truth, though, that in spite of helping to execute this no-spoiler plan to the best of my ability for two generations now, I actually prefer to know the score in advance. While Brian is cheering on the team and coaching them about making their free throws, frantically pacing the family room, I I'm sneaking a peek at the ESPN app to see how it all turned out. Because I find it easier to relax and enjoy the game, even if my team has lost already. Otherwise, the suspense gets to be too much. Yep, I'm watching, he says. There we go. <laughs> sometimes during a live game, I have to go take the dog for a walk. Because sometimes when you're in the middle of it all, can be helpful to know how it turns out. Is that a spoiler? I don't know, maybe. Is it a spoiler today, before we even start Holy Week, to have just read the resurrection story from Easter? Well, the story has been around for a while. I doubt that you're truly surprised by how it ends. But still, why now? Why today? It's still Lent. Why am I reminding you of the final score before the game is over? That's probably beaten that metaphor into the ground. So let's turn to Mary Magdalene instead, who is standing at the tomb, weeping. What she knows so far is that Jesus' tomb is empty. Two other disciples have come and gone with her, and they've witnessed what she told them, that the tomb, the stone has been rolled away, and there's no one there. Those two disciples go home, not sure what to do. Mary stands there, weeping her life as she knew it, having come to a halt. It's so hard and maybe impossible for us to imagine what being in the middle of that unfolding moment was like for her. To have been there the first time around, when Jesus' resurrection was still an unfolding story still actively happening, not something that you and I have known about for 2,000 years. But for Mary, there's no assurance yet 
of how it's all okay in the end, because there's no end, not yet. There's just her loss and her fear and her uncertainty. And it's so overwhelming that when Jesus, in fact, appears right in front of her, she does not know who he is. If that seems weird, that she looks right at Jesus, straight in the face, but doesn't recognize him, then think about maybe the last time that you were overwhelmed by grief or anxiety or the total disintegration of your life as you knew it. Because all of a sudden, everything around you can become unrecognizable. All you can see is the loss or the no or the diagnosis or the silence. There are days when none of us can identify our lives properly. Being in the middle of something can cause a profound loss of perspective. What it takes to shift everything in this story, as you probably noticed, is for Jesus to call Mary by her name. Mary. That's it. What was it exactly? Was it the sound of his voice? Was it the way he said her name? Familiar to her and yet new? with love and care and maybe just a little bit of a smile because people have made a lot of assumptions about Jesus, but this is the first time anybody thought he was the gardener. Whatever it is, it brings her back into that moment again. The one who holds all of our endings has come to meet her in the middle of it where everything is still unfolding and he's there to show her the way forward. That's the score. Jesus has walked through the door and announced it while we are still in the middle of everything. Shoulders hunched, pacing frantically, yelling about how it's not going wrong, it's going wrong and nothing's going to turn out the way we hoped. It's all the ref's fault. And it's not that knowing that ending lets us off the hook. It means we can sit back and say, oh, I'm sure it'll all turn out fine. I mean, after all, Jesus comforts Mary by saying her name, but then he immediately sends her off with work to do. Go, tell my brothers, he says. Mary does, and they don't believe her. And they don't even believe Jesus until he breathes on them and shows Thomas the wounds in his hands and his side. It's not that knowing Jesus in the middle of this, that knowing the ending makes everything easy. It's that we can move forward with hope. You and I, we know the score. We know the ending. And so that means we know that right here in the middle of this human mess we have made, God is still present with a spirit of reconciliation and hope, of justice and mercy, of small kindnesses and great revolutions. We know about a God who shows up in the strollers left by mothers at a Polish train station for the refugees from Ukraine who arrive with nothing. We know about a God who shows up in the chemotherapy room as a friend who sits with you while you wait. We know about a God who shows up in the persistence of those who work every day to make the world better, grinding away at the small things that end up being big change. 
we know a God who never sees any of us as a problem to be solved or an issue to be voted on, but as a person to be loved. We know that score. That's the ending. We are still fully, completely, absolutely in the middle. There is still a lot of uncertainty and heartbreak and loss ahead. There will be injustice and unfair twists and turns, and there's no need to pretend otherwise, because Jesus said the truth will set us free, not some pale imitation of it. But don't forget, the ending has already been written. So remember that now. Remember it in the middle of whatever you are in. Remember it as we get ready to head with Jesus into Jerusalem, into the crowds shouting for joy and then turning on him into his betrayal and his supper of bread and wine and his careful washing of his disciples' feet and his cry of agony at the cross. We are not done until we get to that empty tomb. And once we've been there, it's our job to go and spoil it all. Spoil everything in this world that leads to despair and hatred and violence. Spoil everything that tells you you don't matter or it's too late to make a difference. Spoil everything that tells you not to hope or not to care, just to get what you can for yourself and hang on to it as long as possible. No to all that because we know the ending. So go scroll it across the madness of this world. Plant it into the soil like the gardener who is our savior. Sing it as the shining moment of every imperfect day. Go, my friends, find a door, walk into it boldly and announce as loudly as you can. Everybody tell me the score. Love wins. The end. Amen.